When I was growing up in Jacksonville, Florida, um, as a high school student, my father used to fuss at me just about every Sunday morning. And the reason he fussed at me was because I was inevitably always the very last person to leave the church property and head to the car. And he would say, Alex, why every week do you have to be the last person to leave church? Now, you might say, well, that's because God was calling you to be a pastor. And maybe that's true to some extent. But on a greater level, in a more deep and intimate way, I want to say to you that I have always loved the church. Since I met Christ at the age of 15, I have loved his church. I've loved to be with his people and to be a part of a church family. It's probably what makes, you know, for Jody and I, it's so difficult to be walking through this pandemic because, let's be honest, it's just not the same with all these masks and with all this social distancing and with all the ways we have to be careful and cautious and appropriately so. But it is hard because we want to be the church and I love the church. Alan Cox, one of our members, lost his mother, 95 uh, a week ago, Saturday, we prayed for Ruby, Miss Ruby, as most of the folks knew her in Gainesville, um, on Sunday a week ago. Miss Ruby was 95 years old. She had lived a full life in the Lord. She was a committed Christian and a woman who uh, loved books and just it was a, a delight to be around. Jody and I knew her pretty well. And uh, Alan said to me, as we were talking a few days ago, about his mother's passing, he said, you know, Alex, I don't know how people deal with crisis in their lives when they don't have the church, when they don't have a body of believers to lean upon. He said, I can't tell you how comforting it was to me, even as my mother was lying in a hospital and they couldn't visit her over in North Florida, to know that there was a group of people praying and interceding for Miss Ruby and for Alan and Don and for the rest of his family. That's words that Mary Coriel, our, our matriarch, has, has pronounced before. Uh, I don't know how people do it. The church is such a gift to the world and to us as believers. Henry, now, uh, Henry Newbegin, uh, Leslie Newbegin, gosh, I got my names mixed up. Leslie Newbegin is one of my heroes in the faith. And Leslie was a, uh, a pastor to India and eventually became a bishop in the Church of India, South India. Um, Leslie Newbegin wrote a lot about the church and his, his kind of seminal work about it is called Household of God. And, and in that, um, Newbegin writes these words. It is surely a fact of inexhaustible significance that what our Lord left behind him was not a book, nor a creed, nor a system of thought, nor a rule of life, but a visible community. It's an inexhaustible significance, Newbegin says. And I say, amen. The church is such a valuable, precious thing, and yet, oftentimes, it has become uh, a negotiable, uh, a, next, a nice add-on if we need it or can, uh, can fit it into our schedules. And yet that is exactly the opposite, I believe, of what our Lord intended. This morning in our gospel reading that you heard me read a moment ago, we get basically the inception of the church as Jesus uh, conceived of it. 
Uh, it's a confession that, that it comes out of a confession that Peter makes when he's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. I'll say a little bit about that a little later on. But, but to, just, to, just to say this is, this is where Jesus really conceptualizes and inceptions his church. And I believe that, that this, con, this confession, and by the way, confession here we don't mean, you know, like confessing what you did wrong, but a confessional statement, what you believe, Peter says, this is what I believe about who you are, Jesus, um, is the beginning of the church. Now, our lectionary of the next few weeks are going to touch on different aspects of the church, and so I, don't, I didn't really intend to preach a sermon series on the church, but it just kind of happens that it's, it's featured in the lessons. But in this particular gospel lesson, I see at least four foundational things that we need to be reminded of about the church that Jesus called into existence. The first, of course, is that it's a confessional church. I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag on that one. It's a confessional church. It comes out of this question. Jesus is here at Caesarea Philippi, and he begins to ask the disciples, who do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Which, of course, was, a very, was the one of the ways that Jesus loved to talk, refer to himself. And they began to talk about the prophets because Jesus was doing a lot of things that like Elijah did, you know, like raising the dead and, and speaking judgment and speaking about the kingdom of God. And, and so maybe Jeremiah, who was the weeping prophet, maybe Elijah, who was the worker of miracles, you know, and, and uh, you know, just on and on. Maybe John the Baptist come back to life. You know, some people think, well, maybe it's just John the Baptist been raised from the dead because he's sort of doing the same things that John the Baptist talked about and preached and, and carried on John's ministry or another prophet. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And you've heard me say this before, but ultimately every human being has to answer that question to Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And, G and Peter comes up with this amazing statement. Now, we've heard son of man. We've heard Messiah, uh, which is another word for Christ. Christ is the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew understanding of Messiah, king, and then son of the living God. But, but never in Matthew's gospel of these three words, these three phrases come together. And here all of a sudden is Peter put on the spot and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And for once, Peter says the right thing, right? And he gets the A plus, the star. And, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And Jonah or John was his father. This, we're not exactly sure what his father's name was. In some places, it's, it's translated Jonah. Some places, translated John. But, but here, he says, Peter, you have, Simon Peter, you've got it right. Blessed are you. And flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is not something that you can just come to, that unless God reveals himself to you, none of us can find him. Blessed are you, Simon, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. The church is always a confessional church. It's always one that is born out of professing Jesus Christ as Lord. One more quote from Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin says that this is the definition of the church for him. The company of people. There. The company of people whom it pleased God to call into the fellowship of his son. The company of people that it pleased God 
to call into the fellowship of his son. Here's the church. Here is its conception, the confession of Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, did Peter understand every aspect of that? Probably not. He definitely didn't understand the fact that Jesus was going to come into his kingdom as Messiah through suffering and death. And he'll get rebuked in a few verses later on. But, but here is this high Christology, this high proclamation that, 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 that Jesus ties back to, to Daniel 7 where it says the son of man will come on the clouds. That he is the Messiah, the descendant of David, the greatest king of Israel, that he will assume his throne. And that he is the, he's the, he's the son of God in the way that 2 Samuel 7, God proclaimed that, that somehow that, that, uh, that Solomon would be a son of God and that his heir would be an eternal king that would sit on the throne of David forever. And so all of these things are brought together. All this prophetic word about who the Messiah was to be comes together for Peter and he proclaims it. He speaks it out loud and Jesus says, blessed are you. Now you could say, is this passage about Peter proclaiming, Jesus, proclaiming faith in Jesus or is this about the church? You said this was a sermon about the church, Alex. Well, the answer is yes, both. You can't separate Jesus from his church. Uh, the confession of the faith in Jesus is the beginning of the church because what does Jesus say? I will build my church, my community, the community that I've chosen to build around myself. And it's really interesting because if you, if you, if you look at back at Genesis chapter 17, you see in Genesis 17 that God gives another man a new name, Abram. Remember, he, he becomes Abraham. And what does God say to him in Genesis 17? I'm going to make a people of you. And through you, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. What does Jesus do with Simon? He gives him a new name. Simon Petros, Simon the Rock. Before Dwayne Johnson ever thought about being the rock, Peter was the rock. If you don't know who Dwayne Johnson is, that's the, the former wrestler. Now he's a cartoon movie star, I guess. But anyway, but before he was the rock, Peter was proclaimed the rock by Jesus. Petros, the rock. My church, Jesus says. So it's a confessional church comes out of confession of who Jesus is. You cannot separate the church from the Lord of the church. Where the church ceases to be under the lordship of Jesus, ceases to be the church. Secondly, the church is a visible church. I make this point because I think oftentimes it's, it's, we, we like to talk about this sort of ethereal idea of the invisible church and the, the saints and whatnot, but we, we don't really like the people that we're we go to church with or that we have to be associated with, right? I mean, let's be honest. I've said this before. There are some Christian churches that I would just as soon be able to say, well, we're the church, but, but not that part of the church, you know, and to kind of separate out. And yet Christ is called one church and it's the visible church. On the heels of that, let me say that it's a fallible church. It's a very human church. Peter is very human. I don't know if you know this, but this passage is, 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 has been debated throughout history, uh, particularly between Protestants and Catholics. It is, 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 the, is the rock on which Jesus will build his church is that Peter, who then the Roman Catholics say becomes the first, po uh, he becomes the first 
the first bishop of Rome, we know. And, and, but is this, is this leaning towards, you know, sort of the papacy and all that? Or is it simply the faith that Peter has in Jesus, which is a more Protestant idea, this sort of, you know, this sort of faith that he exemplifies? Well, I'll say more about that in a second. But, but understand that, that Peter is not infallible. Peter is very fallible. As a matter of fact, a few verses later when Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem and be arrested and be persecuted and ultimately killed. Peter says, never, Jesus, never happened to you. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. It's not the things of God that you have in mind, but the things of man. In other words, Peter, yes, he got it right right here. But just in a few verses later, he gets it wrong. The church is visible the church that Peter was the rock of is visible, but it's human and it's fallible. It's not without mistakes, frailties. That's why I distinguish between the kingdom of God and the church. They're not synonymous because oftentimes lots that we do as the church does not line up with the kingdom of God. Although as, as the church, we're to be pointing to the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, where he is worshiped and obeyed in a perfect way. That is the kingdom of God that we're, that we're working towards and that we want to be a part of. But he uses this church, this human, fallible, visible church in this world. That's why it's so important that we be in unity as the church, that we listen to our brothers and sisters and not try to parse and parcel out who and, and what we want to be a part of. Now, now again, remember, it's a confessional church. So where the church is departed from the Lord, then it ceases to be the church. But there's a call to unity. There's, if we can agree on the essence, then we need to be careful that we don't divide over the non-essentials or as in the Greek, the adiaphora, the unimportant things that we can differ on. Now this, this, so, so, Peter becomes the, like the new Abraham, calling the new people of God together and bringing the church into existence. By saying this, I'm not in any way suggesting that the, the personal aspect of salvation is diminished. Don't forget last week's sermon. The eunuchs and the foreigners, right, who are included, who if they obey the commands are included in the covenant people of God. God calls each of us individually into an intimate worship of him and an intimate relationship with him. But he doesn't call us singularly. He calls us together. It's the old alpha question, you know, can you be a Christian and not be a part of the church? No. Why? Because you are the church by virtue of your belief in Christ. Thirdly, Peter, in this passage, Jesus reflects on us that, that the church is third, it's eternal. My good friend Pat Herring is here. We've known, Jody and I have known Pat for 30 years. We were all single young adults. We are no longer single, nor are we young. We are still adults. And, uh, and Pat's retired from the Navy, and now he's working in corporate America. Pat, I just want to say publicly that the company I work for is the only company that will be eternal. So your companies will all, even the Navy will pass away, but, but the church will continue. And of course, he labors for the church as well as a lay person. But, but the church is eternal. It's eternal. It's the only institution that will survive death. What does Jesus say? He says, flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I could break out into a Tom Petty song now, but you already know that, right? That's where that song comes from. You can stand me up in the gates of hell. 
But it's, it's this proclamation that Jesus makes that, that the church will not be defeated. It will never go down in flames. Has the church been beaten throughout history? Yes. Has it had scandals? Of course. Has it been torn asunder with, with schisms and heresy? And yes. If you read church history, you will find that there were some times when it seemed as if the church was not going to survive. And yet it prevails. Not because it's perfect, but because of its Lord, who has proclaimed that his church, his body, those he's called himself, would, be, would not be overcome by evil. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Ah, it's important to remember that now. As we, we struggle to how to do church in this weird time we're living in, and, and as we look at things, the forces and culture that could sort of be against us in so many ways, and yet it's important to remember our Lord has said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. The church is eternal. Most of the church is already with Jesus in heaven. Because the church is not just this generation of believers, but all the generations of believers, which is the aspect of the church being invisible. It's the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about, that all those who've gone before us, and, and we're simply, the, we're simply the, the end of the line of a great multitude of those who've professed Christ, who are already with the Lord in eternity the church is confessional, the church is visible, the church is eternal, the church is powerful. Upon Peter's confession, Jesus says, you have been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Again, a lot of ink is spilled in terms of the power to forgive sins and all that, not getting into all that. What is it that Jesus actually says in the text here? He says, the, the ability to bind and to loose has been granted to you. To Peter and to the disciples that are with him. To proclaim the kingdom of God. To invite people to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And to believe in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead. For with the mouth, for the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10. That, that is the power that we have to bring people into the living knowledge of the living God who loves them and has redeemed their lives from the grave and death. So they don't have to fear all these things. Yeah, in the world you'll have tribulation. We know a lot about that. But Jesus said, I have overcome the world and all that is in it, John 16. Jesus, in giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter and to those who would join this confessional church, Jesus is proclaiming that we have the ability to bind and loose as we go out and proclaim to the world Christ as Lord. Some things to think about this morning. Confessional, visible, eternal, and powerful. Why Philippi? Let me end with this. Why Caesarea Philippi? So just to give you the understanding of what's going on here. So, so Galilee, of course, is the northern part of, of Israel. The ancient Israel, the Israel of Jesus' day. Um, the Sea of Galilee being the major geographic feature of that area. Caesarea Philippi is 25 walking miles north of the Sea of Galilee. 
So it's way on up there. As a matter of fact, it's not a part of Galilee. It's in a different, what they call a tetrarch, which is a, a political division. One of the sons of Herod the Great was given it. His name was Philip. And, and this is Caesarea Philippi, Philip of the Philippi. And, and so 25 miles north, up in this Gentile area, at the base of Mount Hermon, is where Jesus chooses to ask this most profound question to Peter. It's also a place where um, the ancients believed that, uh, some ancients believed that it was the birthplace of the god Pan, who was the, the god of fertility. It was actually a, an ancient shrine to Pan. There were all sorts of other false religions, other religious cults that were there. And they, of course, had built a temple to Caesar, Caesar Augustus, in, in the same area. Philip, the patriarch, had decided politically it was a smart move to name the city after Caesar. So he changed the name from Panius, after the god of Pan, to Caesarea Philippi. Oh, and by the way, just to differentiate the name from the other Caesarea, he added the name Philippi so that he would be included. So politically, he had changed the name. So here is Jesus who intentionally hikes with his disciples 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee into a pagan Gentile area at the foot of a mountain that is proclaimed to be the birth of a false god, Pan, in a political place where the city name is changed, and if you know anything about politics, changing the name of a city is not a small task. Now Caesarea Philippi, and it is in this place that Jesus chooses to ask the question, who do you say that I am? What in the world is Jesus thinking? I think Jesus understands the world into which his church will exist. A political diverse, religious plurality, a Gentile world, a place where everything we believe is going to be challenged, and it's into that environment that he chooses to take his disciples so that when he asks that question and Peter makes that proclamation, we understand that it's going to be made in the midst of a hostile world. And that's where we are. I won't give you a lot of Newbigin, but Newbigin goes to South India, sees the plurality of religion, and he realizes that Western Christendom was a blip on the history of the world that will never probably be repeated. And we have the luxury of dividing and fighting among ourselves as Christians because we basically live within a Christendom. That's falling apart, of course, as you know. We don't live in a Christendom anymore. We live in a post-Christendom. Newbigin said a couple of things in his writings. The first is that we encounter a non-Western pluralistic world. Unity in the, among Christians is a non-negotiable. Jesus asked Peter to confess him in a foreign Gentile area. We as Christians must be united. Our unity is our strength. Our unity, Jesus said, if, 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 if it's by our love for one another that, we'll, that we will proclaim him as Lord, right? I mean, there, there's this sense in which we, we have to find those things that are essential that we believe and hold to not only those truths, but to one another. The second thing Newbigin said was, 
increasingly in an individualistic culture, the church will be one of the few safe havens for people to run. Where do we find community in a world where we've moved a thousand miles from our grandparents and we don't know our relatives and we don't even know our neighbors. We ride into our garage and we put down our, our garage door and we go into our houses and then we, and, and living in this very individualistic world, where do we find community? The church. Where will the world find community? Church. Where will they find family in a way that maybe their own families have abandoned them? The church. The church, friends, is a gift to us. And it's a means for us to proclaim Jesus as Messiah, the Son of the living God, into a hurting, dying world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.